everybody. This is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the first week of February 2022. I'm here with filmmaker Todd Blankenship. Hey, how's it going, everyone? And editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. We're going to be talking about the Chinese ending of Fight Club. And is it maybe better? No. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, two filmmakers' <laughs> hands-on impressions with the DJI 4D. I just wrapped a shoot with it and taught a shot with it. And I'm so excited to talk to someone else who shot with it. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that Skydio drone that we talked about like five weeks ago because I love it so much and it was super fun. And uh, now the news is spreading wider. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our first story this week. We know that different markets get different endings. For instance, there was that, I don't know if it was bad or good, I don't remember, but there was that movie Saving Grace about Brenda Blethyn getting into selling weed and finding new romance. It was one of the first times I remember watching a movie and like I had started to learn enough about filmmaking where I could tell where a new ending was tacked on. And like it was so clear to me that like, oh, they shot a new ending for the American audience. Like, you know, the ending of the original was like good. She, but like then there was like this extra five minutes where like she got revenge and she found love and, and the color saturation was different and someone's haircut was different. And I was like, that was, an, <laughs> that was, that was not the rest of the movie. That was shot later. And I felt like so, so, cause I saw it with my parents and I got to say like, I think they shot that later to add a different ending for Americans. And they were like, ooh. <laughs> so we know that this is done. Endings matter a lot for a movie. And, you know, going around the internet right now, Fight Club has a... I, I, I enjoy Fight Club quite a lot. I really like Fincher. I think Fight Club's a solid movie. I always felt like the ending didn't quite pay off the setup. Like, I always thought, like, the merging of the personalities... I don't know. There were I, I didn't think it quite paid everything off. But Chinese censors disagreed, <laughs> agreed with me, but took it way further, where they uh, added an ending with a title card that said Tyler was caught by the police and everyone was arrested, preventing the bombs from exploding. <laughs> Tyler was sent to a lunatic asylum and received treatment, <laughs> which is just like, ah, uh, it is. It's just funny to think about that in terms of like, obviously the censorship is ridiculous and terrible, but it's also like we watch movies for satisfying endings. Like that's what we're looking for. We want to be dragged over the coals for 110 minutes and then have a satisfying ending. And like, <laughs> as much as I don't think the ending of Fight Club is perfect, like I think that it doesn't quite like wrap it up. You've been dragged over the coals for 90 minutes and you deserve some sort of resolution. And just to what be dragged you- over the coals. What? I was, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What it reminds me oh. of is uh, the Simpsons episode, which I think captured the essence, <laughs> which is Poochie returned to his home planet, was destroyed along the way. Uh, for those of you who don't know, just Google Poochie and Simpsons. Find it. It was just the classic like record scratch of creatively, like, eh, we're just going to change all that. What jumps out at me about this, and because I haven't thought about it a lot, Fight Club came out in 1999. Very, very different world, kids, for those of you who don't remember. And at the time, it felt really important, at like commentary-wise. And, and, and yet, looking back, I haven't rewatched it in a while. And I know this isn't really related to the ending, necessarily. But looking back, I kind of don't want to, because I think it's probably... And I'm not talking about from a craft standpoint. The craftspeople behind it are brilliant. 
director on to, you know, everything. But I kind of think it aged culturally quite badly. <laughs> That's my, uh, my assumption is that a lot of what it was about and messaging is stuff that I don't think I want to think about right now in the context of just sort of aggrieved white male stuff. And I think that uh, that's just my personal feeling. So whenever I think of Fight Club, I kind of cringe these days. But again, in 1999, the world was so different that it it worked. But it wasn't so different that that this wasn't predictive, right? Like I still, I watched, there was a screening of Fight Club with the writer at Arclight Cinema a few years ago. And I went with my buddy, Nicole. And like, the thing that was amazing to both of us is that like, it does really hold up amazingly well. Because all of the things it's predicting just got worse. Like yeah. everything about toxic masculinity, everything like Fight Club is Turned just into the, birth the Joe of Rogan podcast. Yeah, like it's all there. Like <laughs> everything happened. is there, right. and so like the brilliance of it—that's why the the ending was always really frustrating for me—is because the actual ending of what started with Tyler Durden and Fight Club is not a clean, messy. We're going to destroy capitalism and it's all going to wrap up. It like it's much more like. We're watching the birth of a spore that's going to spread all over the globe. Like, it, it, Fight Club should end like a zombie movie where you're like, oh, and then there's a billion, you know, like, like this thing is going to continue to mutate and infest and mutate and infest. And instead, it wraps it up neatly in a way that doesn't quite feel like what uh, actually we watched being born. But, but for me, I give it so much respect for like being like, hey guys, this fucking shit's happening. Like, like, like. People have to beat each other to feel alive. And like, that is how they feel like a man. And being a man is probably bad for you. Uh, not being a man, <laughs> the image of manhood that is pressured on us. Like I enjoy being a man. It's great. But the artificial image of masculinity that we feel pressured to try and create is like, and so like, yeah, I mean, it's also so funny for me that all of that was fine with Chinese censors. Like the problem but with Chinese censors had. The, you know, when was the last time you saw a public enemy you know, 1930s gangster movie with uh, James Cagney or like one of that, those era movies where they, or like the first Scarface, I think like the Paul Mooney Scarface directed by Howard Hawks. Those movies had a very heavy moralizing quality usually at the end because they were like, everything was going along and like glorifying a rise in crime, and like, you know, like figuring out how to top of the world mob, which is a different movie, but all that stuff. And then at the end, they would like slam down hard and be like law and order, like and consequences. And like, that's, you know, because that was, it was like slapped on. That's what this Chinese title card reads like to me. It's like, not only, it's like, not only did they catch him, but he's reformed. He had like the whole clockwork orange treatment. Like he's been, he's become a good person now. He's been in a psychiatric ward. Like they had to button up every aspect of it. So say like all that fun you had on the way, we were just going to make sure you understand none of that stuff is good. Yeah, that's a, uh, I, I have so many, I, I don't know. I have, I have a lot of complex feelings about that movie. I don't, I don't know that I ever really liked it very much, but I do. I, th I think I'm more kind of in the Charles camp. It, to me, it's like, there is just like, I'm just over that kind of storyline. Like I'm I, like, I, like I, I think you hit it pretty well. It, it is a, it was a different time. But I think I'm. Just, I just regret a lot of that time and and a lot of the way that that sort of that movie specifically kind of kicked off a lot of that type of thing for a while. Well, it's the same thing that goes on with Tarantino, right? Whereas it's like, how much do we hold someone accountable for its imitators? 
Like you look at all those '90s movies that were imitating Tarantino, but not doing as well, not actually having characters. It's just ultra violence and weird storylines. And you're like, well, is that Tarantino's fault? And like all of the Fight Club imitators, the like desaturated with certain poppy colors and neil and attempts to be philosophically nihilist that don't really go anywhere, like make Fight Club look worse because yeah. Yeah. they were ripping it off so hard. Also, the the Todd, what you point out is also the like life imitators, like the impressionable people who saw it and didn't see the full message or the context and decided, like, you know what, it is good to punch each other for fun. Because that's that's a real thing, you know. I mean, in frat houses and just like you know, quasi. Oh, like, no. I mean, I, just like, like it, 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 it inspired got, yeah. and like it inspired and morphed. That that's kind of the power of these things. And I agree with you, also, Charles. It's not the fault of David Fincher or the the novelist or anybody involved at all. It's not their responsibility to create something that. I think that's where we get into this ending title card, though, because it's like whenever you think of it as it's our responsibility to weave this back to a message that people should follow. And if that 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 kind of can complicate things, unless you're doing it in an organic from the beginning, we want to help see that. But if you're trying to slap onto one person's work, a moralizing message that they didn't weave into it. That's when you get into this like really uncomfortable, cringy, like awful censorship style thing where it's like, that's not what Fight Club was about. Was Tyler Durden reforming? That's that's very true. That is a thing that happens a lot. And it is very frustrating when it does like it, like the meaning of the movie changes over time. I think sometimes one thing that. OK, so I think I missed well, I mean, this. Frankenstein. Part, or maybe, yeah. I mean, the whole point of Frankenstein is that the doctor is the monster. And like, that's the point. And yet, like for two hundred years, like we we've just all renamed the monster after the doctor. Yeah, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> but you were saying something. Always, else. Well, no, we just I cut I, the, I, the doctor out of the story. <laughs> did I miss the thing? I missed was like, what? Why are we talking about this now? What? What happened? Did it? Was it just released in China, or has it been that way for like since the movie came out in China? The, the I believe that this was the because this was the original. Yeah, I believe. So basically, I think what this, the reason why the story bubbled up now is because sometimes the internet is just looking for something to bubble up and find amusing. I don't think it's tied to a specific major so, event. I, here's, here's, here's the, the details from our story. The Chi- it's a good thing you asked this, Todd. Thank you. The Chinese right, streaming well, site... my bad answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, Charles, your bad answer is correct, but I think there is a particular flashpoint here, which is the Chinese streaming site Tencent Video removed the exposition scene and viewers are told that the state busted Tyler, blah, 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 blah. So I, it, as to how it originally was shown there, later on in the article by Jason Hellerman, although Fight Club was shown in Chinese cinemas during the Shanghai International Film Festival, it is unclear whether that version of the film was altered. The mm. film has received more than 740,000 reviews and a high rating of 9 out of 10 on the film review site Dobin, which indicates that many fans of the film likely watched a pirated version. Yeah, so the screenshots of the new ending went viral over the weekend. So I think what happened here is that this streaming platform changed the ending. But they had been they had, had the original ending available to them prior. When I was reading that Chuck Palahniuk actually liked this ending. He said it was kind of more what the the original story was meant to be, which is also kind of interesting. Like he, That's he almost interesting. Got, he got like a free revision 
of the movie that he wanted. You know what I mean? Which is kind of a strange coincidence, I guess. But <laughs> apparently, I mean, that's also I bet he wouldn't have wanted trolling. it. In a t- yeah knowing him but i was just gonna say i bet even if he did want that ending he didn't want it in a single title card (laughs) like that that nobody wants that right (laughs) and they all lived happily ever after (laughs) but i I just want to circle back to something todd said a second ago which is that you've got some regrets about the late 90s and i was wondering if any of those regrets were about owning jenko jeans and maybe being photographed in them (laughs) Like, is there a photo of you in, like, really regrettable 90s fashion that is yeah, part of... get the wallet chains. I had the Heelys, you know, <laughs> just, like, skating around. It was, you know, wild times. Wild times. I just, I want to throw out what I always think about when Fight Club in 1999 comes up, which is that that couple years span, like, 97 through 99, is such a cool, interesting period for movies. And if you haven't dug into it, like if you like i recommend people do because there's so many weird similarities across genre not just movies were very different but like fight club and american beauty and office space there were some themes that were very like what's the word i'm looking for they permutated many genres and styles and and there's something people were working on and i agree with you charles it was a prediction of sorts it was an anticipation of, of a weird shift in the culture, especially about masculinity and life. And, and I just think that it's a really interesting little pocket of movies. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Moving on from Fight Club, I just wrapped a shoot, three weeks shooting with doing some tests of the new DJI 4D, which coincidentally Todd has also gotten to shoot with. So it is a hot camera. Todd did a video review. I'm sure I will be doing some sort of review, mostly lens focused, because that was the big focus. But like, holy shit, like there were frustrations and there is no perfect. But like, I was very impressed. And I, I, I guess I wanted to sort of get Todd's read first before I started rambling on my thoughts. Yeah, so I, yes, I I did quite a bit of work with it uh, for, I think, around a month or two. And I kind of intentionally used it on as many different types of shoots as I could, just kind of like putting it through its paces. And like my overall goal was to see like, how does this actually fit into like a, a shooter's kit? And like, who should actually buy this thing? Because I think, and I'm still kind of like, even though it's been a, a month or so since I, I sent it, back i think i'm still sort of like it's just such a weird new thing that it's, it's it's almost hard to distill it all but i think one thing that i will say kind of off the bat is to me 
the thing that they're doing wrong with that camera is calling it a cinema camera, at least with the the kit lenses. And you know, I I didn't get to try any any of like you know like the other lenses that'll apparently fit on it and stuff like that. But to me, it's the ultimate, like the ultimate documentary coverage camera. Like if if I was going to the Serengeti and was going to be there for a month, and all I could bring with me was one thing, that would be the camera I would do. I actually took it to the desert for a week and we did a lot of stuff out there. There's like a couple like really fun sort of tricks you can do with it. Like one thing I I immediately kind of thought of doing and and I did test it out and I do have a video that I need to <laughs> finish really bad when I get some time to do so. But it's so one thing I wanted to try was like I don't know if you guys remember in Children of Men that famous kind of Children of Men rig where they like built a, a rotating camera in the middle of a car and you watch like this, you know, group of people Ping chasing them ball. and all that. It's like a, a like one of the scariest things in, in film history to me. I thought, man, this thing is like kind of perfect for that. It, it can it can do the full spin. And so I, I just took a tripod and I stuck it right in the middle of my car, set it to like active track the steering wheel. And then was just driving around and just just to see like could could you do like a a driving rig shot and then if you had like an operator have them like do like a full 360 degree pan and yeah you can definitely do that it was actually pretty cool looking so i think it's a really really cool tool like one thing that i i really love to use it for is actually moments where you're not moving the camera like when you have a gimbal it's really you know an obvious move to just like get way too much moving stuff and just everything be a super dynamic shot but when you're out in the field, like when I was out in the desert, I kept finding, you know, these vistas that I just wanted like a nice locked off shot. But obviously, you know, if you have a tripod, you're, you know, having to open up each individual leg and blah, 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 blah. But with, with the Rona 4D, it's so solid. You can just like, you know, if you want to raise the shot up a bit, you just raise it up a bit and it looks, you know, rock steady. So, you know, it's, it's definitely really cool. I mean, they, they give, they gave it just about every feature for me. The, the, the thing is just like, I, if I was shooting a narrative feature film or something, I don't think I would, I would necessarily reach for it. But if I was doing any sort of documentary work, any sort of travel doc stuff, I think it's a really, really good use case for that. What do you think, Charles? I mean, so I like Sort of picking up on, I I had heard your frustrations with the lens choices because you'd been shooting with the stock DJI lens. And so I, when I wanted to spend time with it, I was like, well, I got to take a different angle than Todd. So I reached out to B&H and Lens Rentals and a few other places and rented some lenses. And I basically was like, let's, let's try and shoot everything that you can shoot in terms of lens options on this camera to see what was out there. Cinema Glass out in LA actually loaned me some Canon FD lenses, like 60s still lenses that have been rehoused for cinema which are sort of like the basis of the K35s. So like, you know, nice nice vintage glass, modern glass, all sorts of stuff. And I walked to, I mean, I think they're right to call it a cinema camera, honestly. Yeah, I agree. It's like, it's going to have its hugest application in dock. We were, I was shooting like a three camera thing and like you could just set it because it has amazing active track. So you could just stick that camera on a slider, set the slider to back and forth, and then basically not really worry about it because it's autofocus and it's active track were so good that it was like, you know, it was like running as a third camera going back and forth 10 feet on a slider and just kept the subject perfectly framed the whole time. I hope that they add some software tuning to, to active track where you can sort of set up like an interview mode where it bounces around a little less because like if you have a person whose head moves a lot and talking, 
it's sort of hard to really get it smooth. But I think they could probably program an interview mode that would fix that pretty easily. It'd be cool if, like, if you could program some like lead room too. So it wasn't like, uh, it didn't have to be like perfectly centered or something. Oh no, you, that worked actually. That worked great. Oh, Cause cool. like, yeah, you could totally adjust for lead room. So it had like, as the, as the camera was coming around, there was nice lead room. Like we had someone who was watching it and you could like tweak it for lead room and stuff that worked really well. The problem is just if the subject is like a very animated talker, the shot might bounce more than you might want otherwise. But it was, it was like, oh, holy shit, this is really good at that in a way that feels like a leap forward. But for me also, like, looking at the kind of, you know, like, is it going to replace stuff at the high end of cinema? No, you're still going to be out there on Alexa Mini for those kind of things where you're going to have an amazing first AC and you're going to have all of the moving camera tools. But like, I threw it up on a Steadicam and the Steadicam up was like, uh, oh yeah, that was actually kind of fun. Because then the Steadicam, even with the bigger tools like Steadicam, it still let the Steadicam up worry a little bit less about the horizon because the horizon's going to be handled by the 4D and focus a little bit more on like smoothing out other parts of the move. So it just like took the edge off stuff where you were like, okay, I don't have to worry as much about some things I worry about and it let me worry about other things more because I could sort of like let certain things go. So I found myself really impressed with that. In terms of the lenses that really worked for me, in terms of modern lenses, I was like, Zeiss has this setup, the baddest lenses. I'd never shot them before. They're really for still photo, but they all have internal focus. And once you calibrate them, like autofocus just works. Like it just works. Like there's a little LiDAR thing and the autofocus is amazing. So the Zeiss baddest and then Sigma has some full frame art and contemporary lenses. I'd probably buy the Sigmas. If I buy this camera, I'll probably buy the Sigmas. But holy shit, the stuff we shot on the, like the vintage Canon FDs that had been cinema converted, dynamite. Now, you need it to be properly cinema converted. You can't use like one of those Delrin rings because it doesn't really fit. Like those little like lens straps that you like strap on and cinch tight. Those are going to get in the way of the motor. But if you have a properly converted vintage lens, I was like totally ready to go shoot an indie feature on it. It was like oh, wow. the lens had personnel. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, not every like cinema glass in LA with these Canon FDs, like there's not a lot of those around that are light enough. But there are a couple sets that exist that were really nice. And I think maybe because I had the fun of shooting, like the DJI lens is fine. It's not terrible. It's close focus is not great because it was designed for drones. So like, why would you worry about close focus when you're designing the lens? But I think because I was shooting actual lenses, I ended up falling for the camera maybe harder than you did as a like, oh, I'd like to tell stories with this. That sounds like the case. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, also me, like, me, like I just, everything I shot with it was like just really good coverage. I didn't get anything that was like, like mind-blowingly cinematic, but everything was like just solid. I definitely kept, I kept trying to like dislike the camera just because I'm, I think that's just kind of my personality. Like I, I'm just, you know, maybe a little bit cynical when it comes to, to new cameras and, and weird new tech like that. Like I just wanted it to be kind of annoying in some way, but I think it, it's like, it's really solid and I, it's more than anything, they definitely thought through it really well. And like the, the controls are super intuitive and I mean, the battery life is pretty good. It recharges super quick. I liked, you know, I liked the the little storage thing that it comes with and all that. Like, I, I liked the system quite a bit. I do think it does sound like had I had I tried some some uh, other lenses, I might have I might have had a different experience. I also feel like you know I always like to find new tools that fix issues I've had in the past. And like I've had jobs where like. We had focus issues because we were shooting like night exterior, all steady cam, and the video tap wasn't working great. And so we weren't getting great signal. And, you know, 
I wish more takes had been in focus. And I think like, oh, if I had done this job, that job on this camera, that part of that job, which was stressful, would not have been a problem. Mm. And then we would have worried about other things, which is why I, I think you're right that like it's not going to take over the real high end because like you know when you're on a huge movie, nobody's worried about focus. Like the first AC is worried about focus, but every, nobody else worries I about guess it that's, because the. I guess that's where my whole my whole cinema camera statement comes from. Like, I think there's like just something about the way that they price the camera, and that part of it to me, where it's like if you're what is it? It's like seven or eight grand, right? So if you're spending that much. Nowadays, you're you're doing some you're doing some like I, I feel like you're going to be really building it out, building out a rig. You're probably going to have a little bit more like crew. Like you're going to have an AC. Like you're going to be a little. You're going to be less like in in need of uh, like a completely state of the art autofocus system in some regards. But it's like I I also as I say that I'm like I don't even know if I agree with that. I I think it's just like to me. I just all I could think about was like, man, if I was if I if I was really doing a ton of dock work, I would actually probably consider buying this, but not for like commercial as much. Like, I don't think I would shoot like a like a perfume commercial on this. You know what I mean? I mean, I think that's one hundred percent because you didn't shoot with Canon FDs. Like, I honestly like <laughs> okay. I would shoot like. There's certainly jobs that I would still do on an Alexa or a 12K, depending on what the job was. The 12K being like my other favorite camera of the year. And for certain jobs where there's not going to be a lot of movement and there's not going to be, but like anything where I'm like, you know, because I think perfume, perfume commercial, I'm like, okay, I'm going to want like probably a really shallow depth of field and probably vintage glass. And, you know, this is autofocus on 1960s lenses. And it was like, and it works. And it works dynamite. Yeah, that, and it's that's, like, that's you don't, cool. have, and you don't have to go buy a Preston. Like it, it just like, you put them on, they calibrate. Now, it doesn't work on every... It has to be cinema converted that has a good 0.8 pitch. 0.8 pitch. Yeah, 0.8 pitch. Ring on it. You can't just take random lenses and wrap the ring around it. It has to be done properly. But if it's done properly, you're just putting on old lenses and they're autofocusing and, it, and it's working. And I think like... You know, I think about even cutting down on the time. Like, you know, you're working with a good first AC. There's very little time lost to focus. You're losing a little time to focus. You're mm. losing a little time to marks. And, you know, all right, well, let's just like get rid of that and like have this thing that like I can float with and I can play with. I don't know. I think it's, I think, I think that I probably would. And I definitely, any music video, anything I'm doing where there's like any dance or exceptionally large amounts of camera movement, I just feel like this would be my choice. Oh, for sure. For sure. Or, or like I was thinking about, I mean, if I was doing a car commercial, It'd be the first, like, I'd be like, oh, we need this. But I think the one thing that you said the very first time we talked about this camera was that you sort of saw, like, the potential later on for, like, a Ronin 4D Pro kind of situation. That is that is where, I, like, I would I would love something to come out, like, the new, the new version to just have, like, a wildly uh, more, you know, a lot more payload, just so you can, you can make more decisions about lens choice. But... Um, well, because right now you are limited in lens choice to like basically 1.1 or 1.2 pounds. And that even lightweight cinema lenses like the Zine CFs are like lightweight and they're all around 1.9 pounds. Like you're never, there'll never be a Ronin 4D Mark II that can fly like Master Primes because those <laughs> weigh like five to seven pounds and yeah. fuck those lenses. But like, yeah, it would be nice. 
if there was like a triple beefy version that could fly a three pound lens. Because once you get to three pounds, you're like, oh, I could fly like Cook S4s. I could fly Airy uh, Supremes. I could like, there's a lot of stuff under three pounds. Yeah. But, but the flip side of that is that camera's going to get, because here's the thing you look at the 4D and you're like, oh, I bet that's going to be really light. And then you pick it up and you're like, oh, this is actually kind of heavy. Like there, there's some density there. Yeah. And my suspicion is they limited its size based on how heavy they felt people could comfortably carry for a long shot. And I think that if you went to a 4D Mark II that was like triple beefy, or if they made a 4D Pro that was triple beefy, that's going to be, that's going to be a, a, a chongus. A, be- a beefy boy. Beefy boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to think of the right meme. And you're definitely going to need to easy rig it or something to keep it up. I, yeah, I mean, I don't I know. I heard that- chongus and I thought, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> you were like, oh, the internet. I mean, I don't know how much I heard people a word listen. I recognize in this conversation. <laughs> I'm just going to keep throwing out my opinions and hoping people listen. First off, I immediately, after testing Sigma, I was like, Sigma, you've got to put together a dedicated set for this camera because the Sigma, like, it's the perfect use of those. Like, the art lenses are gorgeous and they, like, paired so well with it. And I shot one contemporary that looked really nice and it was just, like, this great combo. And if they came out with, like, a dedicated set in D-mount, it would be so slick. But it worked even great in E-mount. It was super... Like, I think Sigma might be the choice for this camera, to be honest. But um, Or Zeiss Battis, if you're going new. But probably Sigma. But the two things is, like, if they did a bit uh, the 4D Chongus or the 4D Big Boy, uh, it should be shoulder-mounted. Like, they should rig it so it's easy to sit on your shoulder. If you could put those two... Because it comes with these, like, two pistol grips that are on either side of the body. But it's like, well, those could easily be two pistol grips on a like hand hand grips on a shoulder mount. And so you're still controlling it. And then it's back on your shoulder for the weight. And that's how they do the big chongus. The other thing I think they need to do, <laughs> we were doing motorized back and forth moves on the Serp Genie 2 or the Serp Linear, one of those. And it was fine. It worked great. The Serp is wonderful. Used it for years. The trick with it is it just needs like a dedicated iPad sitting right next to it to control it. Like if you use your phone, it keeps losing Bluetooth cl- connection because like you turn your phone off or you leave and you come back and it's annoying. But like we just sat an iPad next to it and it worked great. Like an operator would come up and their first question would be they'd pick up the controller for the 4D and they'd say, all right, how do I start the linear move from the 4D controller? Like intuitively, DJI needs to make a linear controller for the 4D now that you just strap on the bottom and stick it on a slider so that it's all integrated in like one system with one power setup and one control for linear moves. Because I tell you, it's going to be a huge part of their business is this being B or C camera in interviews. I mean, it's almost worth getting the camera for that. So DJI, if you're listening, make a linear motor that you could just stick on the bottom that goes on sliders because you would sell a lot of them. And it would actually be really nice if it was like all one integrated unit. You didn't have to roll two things separately. And I'm sure there'd be some benefit in terms of like they'd be getting data out of the slide and that would inform the active track or something and algorithms would happen. One thing I will say too is it's it's definitely if you're looking to have a camera that gets a client's attention, that's that's a good one. To go. <laughs> I, was, oh, I, I was shooting, I was shooting with yeah, I was shooting with an athlete, and he was just like, "What the hell is that thing?" <laughs> 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 and, and I was like, "I was like, oh, you know what? These aren't even out yet. They sent this to me to try, so you know, not a big deal." <laughs> yeah, it's the future. No, yeah, definitely. Steadicam was very excited because Steadicam was like, "I think I've heard of that," and I was like, "You're Steadicam up, like." You should be on top of what's come out, but like it's too new. And he's like, I can't wait. Oh, and we were really wondering because, you know, the little, like, if you're, if you're still listening, you probably know what the 4D is. But if you don't, it's a camera with a built in gimbal stabilizer. So, like, the front half of the camera is like the elephant looking thing that's a gimbal. 
and the back half of the camera is all your like cinema connections and stuff. And, you know, we were wondering if the front half, if you really flipped around that front half, if it was going to throw off your balance in the Steadicam. And uh, it does not. It is so well designed that it keeps a pretty consistent center of gravity. So your balance does not throw off on the Steadicam. Although if you whip around fast enough, the momentum can sort of impact your Steadicam. So if you're do, if you're thinking like oh I'll throw it on a Steadicam and then I'll like do whip pans back and forth those whip pans the Steadicam op needs to be ready for to sort of counterbalance which I thought was like good knowledge to have but yeah no the Steadicam op thought it was cool the actors were like what is that <laughs> and it's got a couple of years I think where people are always going to be like what is that yeah I wonder I wonder how much it'll be uh, it'll go the way of like everything else where over time it's becomes way more normal like i wonder if there are, you know other other manufacturers will, will take a try at it or something we'll see oh my god yeah like i mean i i literally just came off three weeks with it and i'm hyped about it like it's not going to take over all of my business the black magic 12k and will still end up being a lot of what i shoot because that camera rocks mm-hmm. and especially the color is just ever so slightly better than the 4d color so like if I'm doing a job where color accuracy is really all I care about, I'll probably stay on the 4D because, I mean, on the 12K because it looks so fucking good. But the 4D will probably take over a lot, especially it's more around to rent because I'm not sure if I'm ready to buy or not. But no, everybody's going to knock this fucking shit off because it's hot as shit. There should be like, <laughs> like it's so good. It's going to be hard to knock off. DJI has a lot of proprietary tech in there that I don't know if everybody else can knock it off. Yeah, But people are like, it's... I will be shocked if if people don't try and come for it and try and figure out a way to improve on it. But I think, honestly, DJI's got like a two or three year lead. Like, I can't imagine anyone else coming out with anything close in the next two years. Is it officially out, like, for purchase now? Yeah, you can buy okay. them. You could buy them as of January something, like January yeah, 3rd. I, I knew, it, I knew no. it was, like, supposed to be this month. I didn't yeah. know if they had actually gone through with it, though. You okay. could go buy a 6K now which is going to have slightly better low light. and Or you can buy an 8K, which comes out in March, which will be slightly less good in low light, apparently, which makes sense. Like, I buy that. I haven't tested it yet. I'm hoping to test it. But honest to God, the 6K with better low light is probably fine because the files are pretty big. Because the raw formatted supports is ProRes RAW, which isn't supported in Resolve. So you end up shooting plain ProRes if you're a normal person who doesn't edit in Final Cut Pro. Like, no offense to Final Cut Pro editors, but it's not quite a dominant platform yet. So most of us just shoot pros in the camera. And the files got really big in 6K. <laughs> I did go through that that one terabyte stick pretty quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would say that I bet, I bet the 6K is the big seller. Because paying an extra... Because here's the thing. You can pay an extra four grand to get 8K. But the benefit of 8K right now is really being able to crop into it to stabilize. And you don't need to crop into it to stabilize on this camera because the camera is stabilizing for you. So just shoot 6K. That's my take. I actually have a client who wants to get this camera and shoot 1080 on it. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if, he's if like, I doing... deliver everything 1080. Why am I paying for all this hard drive? Yeah, so that's the 40. I mean, it's interesting to... It's definitely going to be something. It's definitely going to be part of some shoots. The question is going to be how much it cannibalizes the real high end. And honestly, I think it's going to cannibalize some of it. I think there'll be a couple films at Sundance next year that are entire 4D shoots. Interesting. Like n- narrative projects, you think? I'm I'm shooting a narrative in June that I think is going to be 100% on the 4D. Wow, okay. Cool. Well, I cannot yeah. wait to hey, see that. Hey, that's exciting. Congrats. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's all on bikes. 
So yeah, perfect. Yeah. So it's like that was, you know, it's the it's the kind of thing where I I already would have been bumped down from the twelve k to like a six k pro to be in a Ronin S, and at that point I'm like, well, the four D with it all just built in just makes more sense. So nice. Yeah, we'll see if it's one hundred percent on the four D. The night scenes, like there's a night scene that's not on bikes that might make sense on the 12k for the really amazing low light we'll see tests will be done but it'll be like 90 percent on the on the 40 uh and i i don't think i'm alone like i think other people will be like oh no i could do this narrative thing that was complicated for this reason and now it's kind of like i think i i think there's going to be i would be willing to bet money there's going to be four or five things that are like complete on the 40 in sundance next year Sweet! Yeah. I can't wait to to see that. I I I, I want it to I want it to succeed. I, I I like the camera. I'm intrigued by it. I I would love to try it again with some different lenses. All right, moving on. Up next, we're going to talk a little bit about Skydio. So we talked about Skydio a little bit before. Skydio is interesting because you know DJI owns the sky right now. Other people keep coming and saying, "Hey, can we get in on that sky business? You seem to be making a bunch of money up there in the sky." And even GoPro, who has a bunch of scratch, were like, can we fly with you? And then the GoPros fell out of the sky. And they were like, I guess not. And GoPro <laughs> like entirely gave up on the sky. And I feel like we've seen a few other contenders like take swings at it. And to be clear, I'm only talking about like the sky market for filmmaking. There are other people who make drones, who make plenty of money making racing drones and industrial inspection drones and all sorts of other shit. I'm just talking about like the drones we care about on a film podcast, filmmaking drones. DJI just owns that shit. Like, as locked up as any... I can't think of anyone else who has such market dominance in any other field. Like, in cameras, there's Aerie and Panavision and Red. Even in Steadicam, there's, like... There's Tiffin, who makes Steadicam, but there's also GPI and a few others who... Like, but really in drones, like, it's just DJI. And Skydio's been making some interesting drones that haven't been filmmaking relevant, but are, like, action sports relevant, because their whole thing is autonomy. Their whole thing is like, it's got, we're going to have the best tracking. So you can fly it yourself. You keep this beacon in your pocket and it'll follow you on your whole bike rides. You can get like your cool action sports shots alone. And Skydio is like head and shoulders above everybody else in that. In terms of like tracking you and avoiding trees and staying with you and like doing that kind of thing alone. For content creators, Skydio has had a name. It's funny. I've been doing a lot of bike work in the last year. And like every time I'd like bring out a DJI Mavic or something, people would be like, oh yeah, that's cool. Have you flown Skydio yet? Like in in action sports, it's a name in a way that mm. it's not in filmmaking yet. I hadn't heard of it until all these bike people were telling me about it. But so they got in touch with the film school actually specifically because they were like, hey, we have some new features coming out that we think filmmakers will find interesting, which is always flattering that like we're on the list of people that companies want to talk to when they have new filmmaking features. So they launched these new features in CS, and it is keyframe in the sky. So it's like exactly like keyframing in Premiere or Resolve or Pro Tools or whatever you keyframe in, where you're like, okay, I'm going to set like this height, and then I'm going to like put a little dot, and then I'm going to go later in the timeline, and I can set like a different height, and I'm going to go later in the timeline and set a different height. It's exactly like you do it in your editing application, but it's a drone flying in the sky. So you're like, okay, start over here by the bridge and over here by the tree. And then you click go, and it just repeats the shot perfectly. And then you can adjust the speed of the shot. You can have it do it backwards. And it's good enough that on a non-windy day, you can composite them together. And it's like fucking hmm. cool as shit. Really? Like it's that it's that pinpoint accuracy level that you can 
I mean, so I was not able, I was only flying on windy days and I was not able to get it perfect enough where I felt like I could composite it easily. But they had a demo video that they shared with me where I was like, oh yeah, I, I see no wind in those trees. And, and I see eight of the same person wandering around frame. I included it in my YouTube video. And like, I, I firmly believe that in the right flying conditions, it is accurate enough. Because the way the Flydio, the Skydio works is it builds a 3D model of the world around it. So this isn't GPS. This isn't like, oh, I'm going to these GPS points because GPS is only really accurate to like three meters. So like that's 18 feet. Like that's not that accurate. So it uses GPS for general positioning, but then it builds a 3D model of the space. Using LiDAR or? Using, it's surrounded by 360 cameras. So it's, okay. it's, uh, it's image recognition, but it's using that image recognition to create the model. It would be oh, sick as cool. shit if it had LiDAR, but I suspect that LiDAR would make it really big. I hope they make one with LiDAR. That would be cool. But it's building that 3D model. So when it's recreating what it's doing to get to the keyframe is it's lining up not just the shot. It's trying to line up all seven of its cameras or eight, whatever, how many it was, back to the exact same spot. So the framing should be incredibly accurate because it has seven cameras that's like, let's make sure I'm this close to this tree and let's make sure I'm this close to this house. And and like all of them need to line up for it to feel like it's reached its keyframe point. And it was like amazing to watch it do it. And I can totally see that on a windless day with, I think you would look, it's one of those things that you would learn how to be good at it. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. If you were like, oh, I'm going to, if you write a music video treatment that depends upon compositing with this thing, you want to buy it a month in advance and do like 15 tests. Because right. I bet there are tricks. I bet there's like, oh, I can put these three C stands out there and have orange tennis balls on the top of them. And even though they're not showing up in frame, the Skydio sees them because they're right underneath the Skydio and they help the Skydio orient. And I get more precise tracking out of it. I'm sure there's a bunch of tricks you can do right. that will, like, if you become a nerd on this, you can make it sick as shit. But even me, like not becoming a nerd on it, just like flying it around a river, I was like, oh, I can totally see that this is super close to compositable. And I could probably make it work if I felt like painting it right. And I'm sure if there was no wind, it would just be dead on. It's also cool. the first review I've ever written at No Film School where I had to write an ethics se section. So that was fun. Why was that? Well, like it flies itself. Like you literally, you press play and then you watch it fly around. And like, you know, I was, I'm in the only place you can fly in New York City, like the simplest, you can fly all over New York City. It's a lie that you can't. But the simplest place to fly is this park, Calvert Vaux Park, the, this, this aircraft club, like arranged with the city to make it easy to fly if you join there. And so like, if you're a part 107 pilot, you can fly in Calvert Vaux if you also pay a hundred dollars a year to this club. It, so that's where I do a lot of my drone testing because it's the simplest to permit. And, yeah. um, a lot of people walk their dogs there. And so I end up spending a lot of time like watching dogs interact with drones and like they love drones. They run right up to drones. They're like, what is that? I want to see that. Are you my friend? And I've seen like a long time, like six years ago, I watched a dog run straight into a drone in Arkansas when I was flying because like they were just so excited about it and they got a little cut on their nose and I felt so bad. And so like, you know, I'm very conscious of dogs when I fly because they love drones weirdly. And like, Wait, like Usually, they jump up and try, and try yes, to get they it? Try and, yeah, they just try and play with it. They're like, you're my friend. I just want, I want footage of, I want drones. I want a supercut 
of drones being grabbed in the sky by dogs in slow motion. But so like I just think that would be amazing. I'm sure it, I'm some someone on YouTube has that. So this is the first time I've flown something where like literally you just stand back and you hit play and it flies itself around on this route you programmed. And like I flew it once and a dog started coming and I was like, oh, I am paying attention <laughs> so I can hit stop and fly it up straight up so the dog doesn't get cut. But that's an ethical thing about the design of this system. Autonomy is coming to filmmaking was my big takeaway. Like we are increasingly going to see tools like this that allow us to pre-plan and execute shots. I don't mm-hmm. think this is the end of anything. I think it's the beginning of like, as a filmmaker, there will be tools in the next three to five years that are things like, oh, okay, well, if an actor misses their mark, like the camera will automatically move to compensate for it. Mm-hmm. And if that's a Chapman dolly, is that is that then going to like be willing to crush someone's foot to do it? And like, there's all sorts of things we have to think about as we build these things. And like, I was literally like, oh, this is an ethical moment where like, I have to stay engaged as this drone does this automatic shot to avoid cutting dogs. And is everyone who (laughs) does this going to stay as engaged? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just an interesting thing. I mean, the whole drone, the drone thing is definitely that. Like, you just have to like, like every time I fly a drone, my hands are shaking just because I'm like, just making sure I'm not doing anything stupid with it. I had actually heard of Skydio. I actually had their app downloaded on my phone for some reason. I think it was because that that autonomy stuff that they have is actually really useful for doing photo scans. So like if you want to fly a drone around like a cool old building and you want to create a 3D model out of it, uh, Skydio is currently like the best uh, way to do that. Like a lot of people tend to use it specifically for that. I mean, I think even even more so with the the keyframe feature, like because a lot of times when you're scanning a building, like the parts that get a little bit uh, forgotten about, like especially if you're trying to use a like a, a Mavic or something, is the like the top of the building always kind of gets forgotten about, and there's not as much like detail or whatever. So you could just like set a keyframe up there and go make sure you get some good footage of that or whatever. But I, I definitely, I definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of the theme of this whole this whole uh, podcast episode is like the sort of autonomy and and things just kind of be like the the technology finally getting to a place where it's like it's it's replacing more high-end cinema processes and i mean you could you could get some real like i was i i saw the the youtube video you posted you could get some really crazy stuff like really elaborate planned out stuff with with that feature i think well and the crazy thing about it is that it like it lets you get shots that are better than where you are as an operator like, I'm not a professional drone guy. Like, I, I I fly a lot of drone because I do a lot of, like, like on pretty much anything I shoot, I try and bring a drone out so I can get, like, an establishing shot or whatever. You know, like, I'm that guy who's like, I'm just going to add it to the mix of stuff. But I'm not a five days a week, I'm out flying drones. I'm the person you want to hire for your sick drone on your high-end project. That's not what I do. But I was getting some much nicer shots that I'm normally... I did stuff that would normally be outside my skill set where I was like, Ooh, I'm going to sweep like real close to this foreground tree or I'm going to do like, and it was like, cause you're just pre-programming keyframes and you're playing and then you can speed it the fuck up. And so you're like, Oh, well I did this test at four miles an hour, but I'm just going to crank it to 10 and then I'm going to do a shot at 10 miles an hour. And it just does it. And mm. it's like, we're going to, it's going to be really interesting to see the ways in which this extends all of our skills. Mm. Like as these autonomy tools roll out into other tools. Yeah, the the compositing aspect of it is very intriguing to me. Like, just the thought of being able to... Because I've been, for a long time, I've been kind of wishing that even, you know, just cinema cameras, like if the 
if the black magic had like a what's accelerometer in it that recorded that data to the footage file and then all you had to do to get perfect track was like you know pull that pull that stuff out of the you know whatever the metadata whatever it is you know like i think more and more stuff like that could be a thing and so like if you if you have a drone that can recreate the same shot multiple times on a on a clear day that's i mean that would be pretty incredible for compositing so yeah i like that. oh it would be insane for compositing i mean my big dream is i'd like it to be able to store these over time like i'd like to shoot the same shot of calvert vaux park over like the next 10 years and oh, like be able be so to do cool. it right and then like watch climate change happen to it like oh, that would man. be cool as shit right it doesn't currently let you store shots i've been pestering them i'm like guys i would pay a monthly fee for like a place where you let me store these I have a feeling there's a reason why they're not doing it yet, but everybody loves a subscription. But the other thing you're making me thinking of, going back to the 4D, we really went tech-heavy this week, but you, some of you stuck with us, is my other note for DJI about the 4D is there's a whole fuck ton of metadata I want you guys giving me in a sidecar. Because yeah. like you're giving me now focus. Like I want all of my focus data recorded because all of it's autofocus now. So if I could have those focus marks recorded in post so I can do a composite that matches the focus rack, and also, you've got sensors all over the 4D, including these downward-facing sensors that are helping it keep everything stabilized. So it has an idea of where that camera is in the world in relation to the ground and how it's moving. So th- there needs to be some sort of like metadata sidecar that comes with it that or I like, can then if, plug into Nuke. What if you could turn on where they turn? Like, what if you could turn that lidar map into a depth map? Motherfucker, yeah. <laughs> and then you could add like you could easily oh boy. Yeah, cuz then you could you could like do compositing with the depth map and add like fog into see oh man. Oh man. That's amazing. Yeah, and, but these <laughs> come on, are the kind come of on things. DJI. Well, I mean, first off, this is all easy for DJI to roll out. Like, none of the things we're suggesting are hard. They might only come with the big chongus. They're not probably going to roll out with the first version. But, like, if you guys call it big chongus, we want royalties. Um, <laughs> but, the it, like, but DJI 4D big chongus, like, should have all of, like, it's not, like, all of this data is easy to record. And, yeah, having that LiDAR data would be amazing because then you're also getting focus. You're getting, like, a really great map of everything. And that's when it becomes a real legit cinema tool. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, then I can like drop layers of fog and diffusion effects. Then they team up with Tiffin and they're like, oh, we can actually recreate what on-lens diffusion would look like yeah. in posts way better than anyone else has ever done before because we've got a real LiDAR map of what was shot. Yeah, that's what's gotta, exciting for me. They got to do that. That's a great... Yeah, I want that. I didn't even yeah. know I wanted it, but now I do. Well, I mean, you know, part of the reason that we do the podcasts is to create a hunger in ourselves for, for new things, for camera people to deliver for us. I'm just happy yeah. you guys are happy. Spread the word. Spread the, listener, all five of you, spread the word. Yeah, those of you who are still with us. No, like, George, like, I want to I wanna drill down until, uh, like, George is with us. Like, because I, I feel like, George, you're being a good listener proxy in this moment. Does anything that Todd and I said make sense? Oh yeah, no. I mean, I okay. yeah, I I I just am making light of the fact that I can't really hang with the, the depth gotcha. okay. of talking about these cameras. But yes, there is. I think it's exciting to hear about ways that these cameras are making more things possible, but also ways you want to see them push it further to make even more things that you want to do attainable. 
it's exciting to hear people talk about that because from my perspective, it's kind of like, well, why would I, you know, what's the difference? They're all pretty good now, you know? So there's a lot of nuance in what they can do differently than others. And when you're talking about drones, you know, that's such an emerging, I don't know, like it's a completely new space where people are, it's more possible to put your camera and do completely new things with it, with the drone. So the more people who can get their hands on it and the more safe it is and the more, I mean, it's, it's an exciting tool for sure. But I mean, I think, yeah, totally. And then I think what George and I are, uh, Todd and I are also hitting on is like, we're getting to this place where there's an increasing recognition of like the handovers that need to happen to play well with others, right? Like we've always seen this in editorial posts where like you can take a Premiere XML and put it into Resolve for color grading. But we're starting to see like the hunger that Todd and I are expressing. And I think hopefully camera manufacturers are certainly starting to understand. It's like, we want all the fucking data you can give us because then we'll be able to do other stuff with it in post. Like we want Skydio to let us save those keyframe shots so we can do them again and again every three months for the next decade. And we probably, honestly, if they gave us all that data that they collect, I'm sure there's post applications to that data as well. I don't know what they are because I don't do enough of it, but I'm sure they're there. And then what we're saying about 4D is like a sidecar file is like, you've probably downloaded it from a camera where like, you know, it'll be a main video file and then there'll be a sidecar file that's just all this data. And if the 4D would record like focus data and all of the LiDAR data it's connecting and all of its motion data, then if you wanted to go in and post and add fake fog, the problem with fake fog usually in post is it like if you add fake fog in post, it all looks the same. So it looks like you laid it on top of the image. Whereas what you really want is you want fog that's like out of focus and then it's in focus around the actors and then out of focus again as it's further yeah. away. And if you have the focus data from the camera, it's like really easy to do that. And then you don't have to fog the set. You just click and fog appears in post. And then well, you're getting into like a really sick place. And yeah, and then like to take it even a step further, if you if you, if it's good enough of a depth map, you can like remove the need for green screen. Because if you have a depth map and and you can in post basically tell the software like here's where the edges of this like you can basically break up your scene into slices essentially and you could say I want this thing to go in this slice and I want this thing to go behind this slice and this thing to go behind this slice and if it's a high fidelity enough depth map you can completely composite without doing any roto ever again which is I mean so the concept of cameras being able to record depth maps is a thing that I literally never thought of until there's like actually in Photoshop now there's this AI tool it's it's this new filter you have to like download it and turn it on but if you go up to filters neural filters it's this depth blur thing and you, now it can take AI tools and make a depth map from any image and it's pretty good so it's like when you have that depth map now you can go into after effects or whatever and basically, there's like a effect that basically sweeps the depth map in terms of like where, how far away, how close you want that like sort of slice to end. And then, yeah, so I mean, like, holy, holy shit. Like, what if we had depth maps being recorded on set that are good enough to never need to roto again? Oh, that would be amazing. Which is also a fun thing that like Apple is pushing on their iPhones. Like the iPhone now, if you're in cinematic mode, it's shooting a depth map. I think it's radar, not LiDAR. It might be LiDAR. I don't remember. It's been a couple months. But like, you know, coming up from the consumer space is this, let's shoot a depth map for everything. And what's fun is then they're building the tools into Final Cut Pro, which I made fun of earlier, and now I regret 
Because in Final Cut Pro, you can go adjust your focus and post. And you can also extract that depth map, which is super fun. Because then if you want to do that thing where you're like, someone's talking and then like some text floats in the sky next to them. And as the focus racks off the person, the text also goes out of focus. Well, like that, that like it's not hard to do without a depth map, but it takes time. Whereas with a depth map, it's literally just like copy paste and it happens. Yeah. And it's like, and now we're, it's, this is one of those cases where like what's coming from the consumer, Apple, where Apple's like, oh, why don't you just shoot a depth map with everything and you can open it for photos and Photoshop or you can open it for videos and Funnel Cut. I, I hope is putting pressure on bigger companies to be like, oh, well, well, shit, we should really probably have a depth map with everything we do. And the easiest people to do that right now are coincidentally the two people we're talking about today, Skydio and uh, DJI. <laughs> so we really, we had a theme, guys. We found it along the way. We didn't start with it, but that really is the theme, which is give us more data, <laughs> you two companies that are doing the thing that we need you to do. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the awesome. No Film School podcast this week. It was tech heavy this week. It won't be tech heavy next week unless a bunch of shit comes out that we don't know about yet, which could happen. Um, Ronin, I'm Charles Ronin, Ronin, Ronin 5D, big chungus, bigger chungus. <laughs> I, I, if there's a 5D, I hope the fifth dimension it does is scent. I hope it can like <laughs> smell actors and record it. That would be the 5D I want from Perfect. them if they go for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm Charles Hain. I'm on the internet at Charles Hain. Like all the places, H-A-I-N-E. The dot com, the twits, the insters, all of it. I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me on Instagram at am, am I a filmmaker as well as YouTube. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. And you can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check us out on Instagram and YouTube. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think. Send us emails at editor at nofilmschool.com to give us your impressions. Ask us questions, and we will answer them on air during our future episodes. Our Interview episodes drop every Tuesday, and this weekly show drops every Thursday. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.